Good evening. We are certainly thankful for another opportunity to be together this Lord's Day. We relish these moments where we are able to spend time and worship to God and with our brothers and sisters, and we are thankful for the encouragement that we are able to offer and that you are able to uh, offer me. I, I appreciate that very much. I know that we are in, indebted to, to the Lord for this opportunity, and so we want to glorify Him. This afternoon, I want us to open up our Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we are going to be focusing a lot of our attention there in 1 Thessalonians. Because the Apostle Paul writes what is one of his most personal letters. Now, it's not one of his longest letters, but it is certainly a very personal one where he takes about two chapters to open. And he describes his relationship with the Thessalonian church. He describes the process of their conversion and how deeply moved he is by their example of faith and love and how he came preaching the gospel and how they were so receptive and warm to hearing it. And he just takes so much time to describe this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 8, he says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. You can just see the, the words of description there as he is speaking and writing. He says uh, he has a fond affection. This is someone who's deeply touched in his emotions for the brethren in Thessalonica. How he says, because you had become very dear to us. There at the end of verse 8. He calls them brethren, and recognizing the kinship that is among them, and that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. He says that they are family. You just see Paul's description here. And in chapter 1 and verse 3, as we heard in our reading where he says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Paul's praising the Thessalonians for their dedication of faith, love, and hope. He goes on to say that he wanted the Thessalonians to abound in love. In chapter 3, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, at the very end of that chapter, in verse 13, he said, So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And he wants God to establish them. He wants them to abound in love for one another so that God can establish their hearts. Paul, he's using these terms of endearment, these terms of deep affection to describe his relationship 
and the approach that he took in preaching the gospel and how they responded in faith, love, and hope and how they are extremely committed and he wants even more for them. He wants them to not turn away from that. He wants their hearts to be established in a very permanent way before God. You think about your heart as a child of God, as a Christian. A Christian's faith, hope, and love are expressions of your heart. Of the kind of heart and mind and devotion that you always have for God. God has always wanted our hearts to be conformed to His will. In the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 12, in Mark the 12th chapter, when Jesus was asked by a man, what is the greatest commandment? You'll remember that He responded in verse 29 of Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 29, Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, Jesus says that is what God wants. He wants your heart. And not just some of it, He wants all of it. God demands everything that you have. He demands it all to be given to Him. And as an expression of loyalty and faith in Him. And so, this afternoon, I want us to think about our hearts as children of God because the heart is very important. The heart is the very source of life. And we're not talking about the muscle that is in our chest cavity. We're not talking about that heart. We're talking about our heart as the seat of the mind, the thoughts, the faculties, the emotions, and the intents of the mind. That is how the heart is used in Scripture. That it's not just talking about emotions, but it is talking about emotions and our thoughts and our logic and how we are able to discern and think through things. The heart is the very source of life and we have to treat it as such. In the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 4 and in verse 23, Solomon says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We have to guard our heart because it is the very thing in which everything comes from. Everything springboards from the heart. Every action, every thought, every word, everything comes from the heart. That's true about sin and wickedness in Matthew the 15th chapter. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus, He was teaching His disciples in, in Matthew chapter 15 and He was warning them about some of the behaviors and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees of that day. And He says in Matthew chapter 15 and in verse 18, he says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. 
you see that Jesus, He tells us what the heart is. And we gauge how our heart is, the condition of our heart, based on our actions. What we do. That tells us what kind of heart we have. That's Jesus' point here. That out of the heart comes all this evil and sin and wickedness from adultery to murder to lying and false witness or thievery. Sin, wickedness, evil, they all are signs of a corrupt heart. So whatever it is that we might be doing, our actions give us a very good litmus test for the condition of our heart. You know, the thing about our heart in our body, we may not know if we have heart trouble. There may be a lot of people who they don't recognize the signs and symptoms of, of issues that are going on with their heart until they go into a doctor and they have some tests run and he's like, this doesn't read quite right. We need to run more tests. But with our spiritual heart, we just have to look at our actions. What are we doing? That's what gives us information. That's how we can see symptoms of a troubled heart, a heart that is not right with God. We can see that very clearly based on our actions. But the Christian's heart, the Christian's heart ought to be doing what is right. The Christian's heart ought to bring forth good things. In Luke, the sixth chapter, in Luke chapter six, Jesus again here, he sets forth a principle. In Luke chapter six and in verse 45, he says, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Jesus reiterates the same principle that he talks about in Matthew chapter 15. Whatever evil comes from you, it's coming from your heart. But then he also gives us the flip side of that, doesn't he? He tells us that if we are doing good things, if we have, if we have good actions, that, that makes us a good person. And that comes out of a heart that is good and right. As children of God, we need to be producing what is good and right in our life. If we have a good heart. And that's the kind of heart that the Christian ought to have. And Paul, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he's praising them for having a good heart. He says, I see your faith. You're laboring in love. The steadfastness of your hope. He says, that is the evidence of a good heart right there. And while sin and immorality may come from an evil heart, the Christian's heart ought to bring forth those good and godly things. And people ought to see that and recognize that. And that is what I want us to think about. Is the heart that we ought to have and some evidences of a good heart that we need to have as children of God. And I would suggest to you that we need to have a heart of evangelism or for evangelism. That is something that the Thessalonians had. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 8, Paul writes about him and the apostles that were with him and the messengers uh, that were with him 
in Silvanus and Timothy and others that might, might have been involved in working with the brethren there at Thessalonica. He says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you have become very dear to us. He says, the reason that I wanted to preach the gospel to you was because I had this connection to you. I had this feeling of emotion and endearment. I loved you. And that's something that should propel all of us to want to be evangelistic. Who do you love? And sometimes we may not know who to share the gospel with. But who do you love? Sure, we all love somebody, don't we? We all have family members that we love, that we're close to, that we care deeply about. And maybe some of them are not Christians. Talk to them. Teach them the Gospel. That's what Paul is saying. I had this connection for you. I loved you. And that is why I wanted to preach the Gospel to you. In chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 3 and in verse 12, as he's uh, in verse 11, let's begin there. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 11, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. He's saying you need to abound in love for all people. We need to have a love not just for friends and family, but for all people. And so, maybe you don't have that, maybe all of your friends and family are Christians. But have a love for everyone, even those who are not Christians. Because the Word of God is supposed to be shared. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 8, Paul says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Paul's saying, you're making our jobs easier because everyone has heard about you. Everyone has heard about your example because you are sounding forth the word of God. Everyone has heard of it. Thanks be to the Thessalonians. That's the kind of church that we need to strive to become. Where the Word of God is shared to all people in all places because of our work and our effort and our heart that we want to have God's Word shared. Their example of faith had been heard in every place that they had taken the Gospel. Is that the kind of reputation that we have? Do we have a reputation for sounding forth the Gospel? And to be effective in, in evangelism. To be effective in evangelism, we must first allow God's Word to affect us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 13, it says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. 
One of the greatest things if we want to begin to share the gospel with others is that we're going to have to live by the gospel. We're going to have to make sure that we are demonstrating in a very visible way as an example for others. That's the kind of heart that we need to be developing. That's the kind of work that we need to be having in our life. Because if we say we're a Christian, but we live like the world and act like the world and talk like the world and dress like the world, then our effectiveness in telling others about Christ is going to be hindered. Sometimes we might be fearful of talking to others about the Gospel. We don't feel like it's proper or something. Evangelism can be a very scary word. A very scary thought. But you know, we oftentimes talk about things that we enjoy, don't we? We talk about sports. We talk about the weather. <laughs> we talk about our hobbies, our activities, the things that we enjoy doing. We talk about Star Wars. You know, I could get a, a huge conversation about Star Wars with a few of you right now. We can talk about the things that we enjoy, but why is it so hard sometimes for Christians to talk about the Gospel with other people? What a shame! If I could talk to someone more about Star Wars than I could share with them about the blood of Christ, shame on me. We need to develop a heart that loves people and that is focused on sharing the Gospel with the lost. Hopefully our evangelism is not impeded because we don't love others and, or have no interest in talking about God's Word. We also need to have a heart for hospitality. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, the Hebrew writer opens that chapter in verse 1. He says, "...let love of the brethren continue." And then he goes on in verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. The word hospitality, it comes from this word that means love of strangers or guests. And it's very much connected with our love for others. It's a matter of the heart. Hospitality implies providing for people's needs of a most basic necessity. And it is uh, going to be this kind of uh, providing for food and lodging and our most basic necessities. And I'm going to ask... I'm going to stop here for just a second. This is getting... It's kind of concerning to me. Uh, I'm going to ask maybe the elders to go look at the weather. It, it looks like the parking lot's getting kind of icy or something, so... I may want to check that out. I can't tell exactly what it's doing, so it's looking it's looking like it could get dangerous. So <laughs> y'all may want to check that out. I'll keep talking, otherwise. <laughs> but in there's this principle that we need to see that hospitality is about developing a close-knit relationship, a close-knit church. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts the second chapter, and in verses 44 through 46, 
where you have the beginning of the church being established there at Pentecost, it says there in, in verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were together, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. You see, there's a heart. Hospitality, it comes from a heart. It's a heart issue. It's a question of what we want to do. Do I love my brethren? Do I want to associate with them? Do I have a love for others that might be in need? And this is something that proves that you are concerned about others. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 2, we see that this is a qualification for being an elder, for being a leader in the Lord's church. It is that you must be hospitable because hospitality proves that you are concerned about others and their welfare, their spiritual well-being. That you want to connect with them and you want to help them go to heaven. It indicates that you have a servant's heart. Somebody that is concerned not just for yourself, but for others. And when we refuse to be hospitable, we are refusing Jesus. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus makes this very clear. In Matthew the 25th chapter, and in verse 41, as Jesus is talking about the, the judgment day scene in which He says in verse 41, Then He will also say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in person and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You did not do it to me. If we refuse to be hospitable to others, we're refusing Jesus. Now, the third and final thing for us to Think about the kind of heart that we need is having a heart of hope. Paul writes about that heart in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 when he says and he praises them for the steadfastness of their hope. Hope requires waiting, that we wait for Jesus. And at the end of every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, there is a mention of the Lord's second coming. At the end of every chapter. It's usually in the last verse. Chapter 1 and verse 10, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The end of chapter 2, in verse 19 and 20, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. In chapter 5, 
In chapter 5, I know I'm skipping chapter 4, I'm doing that on purpose. In chapter 5 and verse 23, this is the one exception that it's not at the very end of the chapter, it's in the last four or five verses. He says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he talks about it in chapter 4. And he says in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. As Christians, we have a hope. And there's, we don't have to grieve in death. We don't have to grieve. We don't have to... Be as those who have no hope. He goes on in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the Word of God, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise First, And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Hope means that we have to wait for Jesus. That we are longing for the day when our heart will be established with God. That we don't have to grieve in death that we will one day be sanctified completely. And when we focus our heart upon our hope, then we find every reason and every motivation to live faithfully for the Lord. We want to worship God. We want to worship Him more often. We want to worship Him sincerely. We want to evangelize. We want to show hospitality. Because we realize that there is something that we are longing for beyond this life. We want to work the Lord's church. We want to teach. We want to encourage. We want to visit those who are afflicted, the sick and the weak. When we have a heart that's focused on our hope, that's what we'll be striving to do. Then finally, very quickly, just want to show that if we have a heart that is not right with God, if we want to make our life right with the Lord, we have a path that we can follow. In Hebrews chapter 3 and in verse 12, in Hebrews chapter 3 and in verse 12, the Hebrew writer warns the brethren there. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Even after becoming a Christian, our hearts can be turned to evil. They can be turned away from God. Any one of us here this evening, even if we are a Christian, even if we have been baptized, we could fall away and be lost. Because our thoughts come from our heart. 
And if our heart becomes evil and our actions become evil, if our thoughts become evil, then we could be lost. But there is a path that we can follow to correct that. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 8, if you will turn with, with me there, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 20, it says, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. This is right after Simon the sorcerer wanted to purchase the power of God with money. And Peter said, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. He says in verse 22, Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Sin begins in the heart. It's conceived there. And Simon's heart had evil intentions. And Peter can confronted him about that. He goes on to tell him what he must do. He says, you need to repent and pray for forgiveness. He used to always struggle with this because Peter told Simon there in verse 22, therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. That there, Peter is telling him to pray. But then, at the end of it, in verse 24, Simon answered and said to him, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He used to always struggle with that. Why does he do that? Why, does, why doesn't he just say, Okay, let me pray. Will you, will you pray with me or something like that? But no, he says, Pray for me. And in James chapter 5, in James chapter 5 and in verse 16, James, I think, gives us a clue. He says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That here, Simon asks for Peter to pray with him because he understood that Peter was a righteous man and he wanted him to pray for him. But you read the description in Acts chapter 8 of how Peter describes Simon's heart and you see that he is in a very unrighteous condition. He says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 23, Peter says to Simon, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Gall of bitterness. That gall is a yellowish green bile that's in your stomach. and something disgusting. It's gross. The bond of iniquity. His heart was enslaved to evil and sin. And Peter says... You repent and pray. The Apostle John would write in 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 8, he would tell us to confess our faults to one another. 
In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Uh, and if we confess our sins, verse 9, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we're going to correct an evil heart, it begins with praying, repentance, and confessing of those wrongs. This afternoon, if your heart is not right with the Lord, won't you follow that path? Will you come back to Him? Will you repent, confess, and pray? We're here to pray with you and for you. We want to encourage you to do what is right. We want you to repent and return to God. And if you are a Christian, I hope that you're encouraged to have the kind of heart that Thessalonians had. A heart that loves others. That wants to share the Gospel. A heart that wants to open up their homes to each other. That's what we see the New Testament church doing. Sharing their lives with one another. And a heart that focuses on our hope in heaven above. If you're not yet a Christian, we hope that you will become a child of God. And if we can help you in some way this evening, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?